Dealing with pride from uh, Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 to 37 and this is uh, part 6 in our, in our series. So as we continue our series in the book of Daniel, we recall that last week we looked at uh, chapter 3 which wasn't really about Daniel but about his mates, the, the famous three who, who refused to bow down to the golden image that the king had set up. And this idol was meant to represent the, the king's glory and centralise worship in one spot. There was no freedom of religion. Everybody had to bow down. And for their refusal, the three were thrown into a raging furnace. Now God miraculously delivers them and then King Nebuchadnezzar praises them for standing up for their convictions. But Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it. His head is so big that if it rained, his robe would not get wet. That's how big it was. But in this chapter, things finally take a turn. And his attitude toward God changes because God is going to deal with his pride in a very dramatic way and teach him who really is on the throne. So we start with the foreword in verses 1 to 3. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live on the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders of the Most High God who has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. From the opening verses here, you get this sense of of a disconnect. Who is saying this again? That something is not quite right. Here we have the very... Same, the very same one, King Nebuchadnezzar, writing an open letter to the whole world that he controls, that he's king over, emperor. And he's wishing them prosperity. And now he's going to describe in great detail a most humiliating experience. Now let's compare it to someone finding your personal journal getting into your finding secrets about you and then posting all these private details so nobody knows about it. So everybody knows about it, but before that nobody knew. Except that the details are not stolen, they're not leaked. This is you. This is you making a full disclosure of exactly what happened in a text, not in a Babylonian text, But this is a Hebrew text. This is the Hebrew Bible. The very people that he had conquered. And now he's putting this full letter, this full address to the nations in a sacred text that belongs to the Jews. Something dramatic had to happen for this turnaround. For he is now praising the God Most High. I want to focus on that name, the Most High God. It's an interesting name because the Most High God in Hebrew means El Elyon. You might have heard of that. And it occurs six times 
here in this chapter. The first time it appears in the Bible is actually in Genesis chapter 14 when Abraham meets Melchizedek, king of Salem, and he is described as a priest of the Most High God. And the name describes God's absolute, unmatched majesty, sovereignty. He is the one who reigns not just in heaven, but on the earth as well. Kings and emperors like Nebuchadnezzar, along with with many others before him and after him, have come head on against God and lost. Why? Because they've wanted to take the glory for themselves. Now let's recall that in chapter 2, he dreamed a dream that he, he couldn't recall and, or, or wouldn't disclose to uh, the details, but then Daniel came and he interpreted Now he has another dream. And God is disclosing important details about his future. Remember the first dream? But the, 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 the first dream were, were things, were details further down the track, generations down the track, hundreds of years down the track. But this time, it's a lot closer to home. And finally, he understands as he relates his experience that began with the dream of this tree. Now, what is the dream? In verses 4 to 18, we have the dream. And in, I'm just going to read verses 4 to 5 where he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented, prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my, through my mind terrified me. Truly, this king had every reason to feel secure, to feel contented, satisfied with with life. There was no one on earth who could challenge him, who would dare challenge him. He's at the peak of his game. Not a worry in the world. He's patting himself on the back, thinking how magnificent he is. Oh, how wonderful I am. Look at you all. This is mine, all mine. His magnificent skills brought him tremendous success. Now he can relax, take it easy. But you know what? Isn't that what we aim for? Like, just to be contented, to just sit down and relax front of the beach with a piña colada and say, wow, I'm here. Can't get any better than this. Have you ever been there? Because, and maybe you're there now. I'm just going to say, be careful. Because God has a way of intervening and rattling our... Because we're not home yet, remember that, right? This is the earth. We're not going to be here forever. And God is going to rattle Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to give him something to 
not just to think about, but something that terrifies him. God has, in countless times, has intervened to, you know, we say this, we say God comforts the afflicted, but he afflicts the comforted. The dream had two parts. First, the huge tree with leaves and branches. As far as the eye could see, this is a big tree. Birds and animals and all of that under the leaves. Second, the tree is cut down and stripped. All that is left is a stump bound with iron and bronze. Then somehow the stump becomes a person who lives among the animals for seven years. It appears, it looks like, this person has completely lost his mind. Again, no one could interpret the dream, so he summons his trusted Daniel to come and tell him. You get the picture that there is a mutual respect between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And this respect didn't come automatically. It's obviously, it's taken years for this trust to build. Of all the people in the royal court, in, in verses 8 to 9, um, we know that Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel will tell him the truth no matter what. As they say, if you want to be trusted, be honest. It doesn't matter if it's good news, if it's bad news, you have to tell it. And this is a great testimony, I think, for Daniel's faithfulness and his godly character at the highest level of government. Because Daniel wasn't in there for the power. He wasn't in there for the money. He wasn't in there for the prestige. He was there because God had placed him there. If you know why you are there, then you don't need to prove yourself to anyone. Because God is going to look after you. Now what is the explanation? The explanation comes in verses 19 to 27. And in verse 19 we read, Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, or Daniel My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. So when Daniel hears the dream, he knew exactly what it meant. But the dream terrified even Daniel. And he stood there silently, not knowing what to say. He was thinking. Because he he didn't want to, he was hesitating telling the king the the awful truth. It's a bit like a a doctor looking at your blood tests and the scans and taking more than his usual time before giving you the sobering news. If the doctor didn't care, if you had no relationship with him, here, you're going to die soon, okay, bye. But if you've built up a relationship over years, then there's going to be a manner, right? 
in which he's going to say it. So unlike Neb's first dream, there was going to be, like I said, those, the first dream, things were going to be fulfilled way down the track, but this one has, has a sense of immediacy about it. It says, you will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat the grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Just think about that. He gives them to anyone he wishes. And you thought that you elected the Prime Minister and the Presidents. You thought that the power was in your hand. If only they spent more money on advertising, right? Sovereignty of God. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. And here it comes. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. It is, this is a clear description of divine judgment. It is both punitive and disciplinary. For seven years, seven times in Hebrew means seven years, the, the king will live as a wild beast having lost his mind. And it will continue, he will continue in that state. Seven years is a long time, right? He will continue in that state until he acknowledges that God alone is sovereign. So the key word here is until, not before. There's there's a call to repent here. Renounce your sins. That's the call to repentance. But was, was he going to, you know, was he going to change? He just heard the, the truth interpretation. What was going to happen? How quick was this change going to occur? I don't know. The late uh, American president, Ronald Reagan, he said, when you can't make them see the light, make them feel the heat. And I think this is exactly what God's going to do with Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the fulfilment in verses 28 to 33. All this happened, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, whole year, right? As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power? And for the glory of my majesty, look at me. Here it goes again, right? He received the dream. He received the warning. He had a whole year 
to change his ways. What was he waiting for? Oh, you know, maybe I've got time, right? I'm having too much fun here. Like, no. Uh, Maybe this whole repentance thing, you know, I don't have to really surrender to God now, should I? I've got more, more days, I've got more time. Surely. God is loving, isn't he? Perhaps he wanted another opinion. For a whole year he looked for another opinion. So he calls the resident psychologist who diagnoses him with delusions of grandeur. Except he wasn't deluded, he really was grand. How do you deal with that one? Then it happened. Just as Daniel warned him. And, and, and rather than repent, he doubles down on his pride by continuing. You, 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 you read the words there. By continuing to bask in his own glory. It just didn't sink. Now, Nebuchadnezzar could ignore anyone and everyone but he learned the very hard way that you cannot ignore God. One moment he's surveying his, his whole kingdom. The next moment he's ripping off his clothing. He's running on all fours down the main street of Babylon, totally stark naked and raving mad. Who's that? The king, is it? Yeah, that's the king. The emperor's got no clothes. I wonder if the cameras will be clicking, right? I wonder if everybody posting selfies on Facebook of the king. You know? Look, look at the king. not knowing what would they would do, the leaders of you know, all the, the government officials and others, they call a psychiatrist who diagnoses him with a complete nervous breakdown. Except that it's much more serious than a nervous breakdown. God calls Nebuchadnezzar to descend from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, to the depths of insanity. He not only behaved like an animal, he also started to look like one. It says here in verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched like the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of people that haven't cut their nails or their toenails and fingernails, what it looks like. It's horrible. Yes, God is gracious and merciful. He's also just and holy. Do not muck around with God. 
Please, I plead with you. God could have killed him on the spot as he did with Herod for the very same reason. We read in in Acts chapter 12 verse 23 an angel of the Lord struck him down because he, that's Herod, what did he, he didn't do? He did not give God the glory. And look at this, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So not giving God the glory is more than enough reason for God to take you down. But he didn't take Nebuchadnezzar down because why he had mercy on him. He, he brought him to the lowest of lows but not six foot under. God's mercy is seen here in the severe discipline that he received but he wasn't killed. And I think what happened to Nebuchadnezzar is a kind of spiritual parable for all of us, I think. Nothing in all of creation, in all that God has created, bears the image of God except mankind. This is what separates us ultimately from all that God has created. The fact that we have been stamped with his image. But when man tries to take God's glory for themselves, what happens is that this image gets degraded and becomes like an animal. Mankind starts to behave like an animal. What does God do? Well, he's, he gives them up and things just go downhill. There's no handbrakes. Start rolling down the hill. This is what we read in Romans. Romans 1, you know the passage well. Romans 1, 21, 22 and then 27, 28. For although they knew God, they neither glorified, there's that word again, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Then verse 27, and because of this, God gave them up, shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Then, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That wasn't enough. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, suppress it, right? Anything to do with God, get rid of it. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Now here, it's not just Paul who witnessed this behaviour in his own day with the pagans, right? It's happening in Sydney right now. It's happened last night. Okay? It's everywhere. Our Prime Minister was, was there. 
there, there, there is this constant demand that depraved lifestyles be recognized as normal, as accepted and legislated and promoted. And it's even been accepted from the pulpits. Denominations, whole denominations are turning over. Many churches have already compromised the truth of God and surrendered to the spirit of the age. We've got this fight even in our Baptist denomination right now. <laughs> and I talk to, to colleagues and say, why are you doing this? Well, we're going to share the love of Christ, they say. We have to share the gospel. Yeah, but you cannot compromise the scriptures. You cannot demean the character of God and what he said because you suddenly want to show love to the lost. Do both. Show love. But you need to be firm on God's standard. We're not mucking around here. And one would hope that the the spiritual insanity, that's what it is, the spiritual insanity ends there. But it doesn't as it spreads to other areas. And get ready for it. Soon they'll be trying to normalise incest. It's already up and hearing articles about it. It's part of the, what it, the things that ought not to be done. That's what it includes. And this immorality is, please, it's, it's not just sexual, it's much more than, than just the sexual realm, right? One ex- example is given by Dennis Prager, um, who wrote that in 15 years of asking high school students throughout America whether in an emergency situation they would save their dog or the stranger first. Most students have answered that they would not save the stranger. They said, I love my dog, I don't love the stranger. So it appears that the the feeling of love has supplanted, replaced God or religious principles as the moral guide. So your feelings are more important than what the truth is. What is right has been redefined in terms of how you feel. How you feel is more important on the facts, on truth. That's where we're at. As a result of God's judgment, we we will continue until God says enough. We're going to see old moral taboos continuing to be Accepted as the fabric of society breaks down. This is because the depraved mind is never satisfied. It's always hungry for more. It's like water. You pour water and it will always go and find the lowest point. That's what morality, what happens to it. The moral boundaries that are set up by God are actually that those moral boundaries that are set up in general revelation that, is, that we find in the scriptures are another aspect of common grace. Common grace is that grace which is God shows to believers and unbelievers alike. It, it, 
it's like a God builds this dam, this huge dam, to control the flow. But once the walls are destroyed, generational devastation happens downstream. It's inevitable. And this is what we're witnessing in the West at the moment. The good news is that God is still on the throne. And the Bible tells us that his mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar by God's grace. In verses 34 to 37, we have the restoration. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is him telling his testimony, right? I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High, I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion, and listen to these words of praise. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done, God? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What have we got here? Well, this is the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? This is the, story, this is the picture of the gospel that, that we find in different ways, in, in different stories throughout the scriptures. The word is preached, well, through a dream and then in interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar are giving man a chance to repent. God warns them. Initially they refuse or ignore and they suffer the consequences for their sin. Here he repents, he looks up to heaven, trusting God for salvation. In his mercy, God forgives, heals, restores. His sanity returns. His power returns. His dominion over under God, returns. But it doesn't stop there. Man then testifies, he declares to everyone who will hear. And, and you know, it's, did you notice how Nebuchadnezzar didn't feel embarrassed for his seven years of insanity? He tells it all. Look, he's coming up in church and said, Paul, can I give my testimony of what happened to me? Just uh, on Friday, I uh, caught up with a colleague and um, he was telling me the story of a guy in church um, that ministering to them for months, right? And in and out of drugs, family violence, all of that, right? 
And finally he, he gets it. And he starts coming to church. And everybody you know, sees the tattoos and all. Come from the, right, the, the lowest spots, right? And God starts to heal him. God starts to heal him and says, Pastor, I need to tell people my story. I just need a couple of minutes. I just want to praise God, please. And he says, sure. As I, the church people are sort of freaked out. What? You know. But that's God's mercy, right? You, you, on one side, you see what sin does, the degradation, the destruction. You see it. But then God's mercy triumphs over his judgments through the Son, through Jesus Christ, who is able to do what we cannot do. And Nebuchadnezzar, I think, is a great example of the words of Jesus, right? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. What's this whole event in Sydney called again? It's called pride. Who are they coming against? They're coming against God. You're going to lose. Big time. Don't lock horns against God. He's sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, one of the greatest emperors of the world, has known, found out. And, and, and just to finalise, one phrase that stands out for me is everything he does is right. Do you get that? Oh, maybe God, maybe you got this wrong, right? Maybe you're a little harsh there, come on, you know. No, everything he does, everything he says is right. What wonder if we can also say the same thing, especially when we walk through the valley of the shadow, through grief and through pain, can we also say that, Lord, you do everything right? The same God who is sovereign over kings, over nations, will also have the last say in our homes and in our lives. Do you understand that? Do you accept that? Just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, he will do whatever it takes to get through to us so that we give glory to his name. Amen? Amen.